Thanks for joining us today for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church in Imperial Valley. The church office is open Monday to Friday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at 590 West Orange Avenue in El Centro, or call 760-337-9400 for information or for prayer. Christ Community Church has three campuses in El Centro, Brawley, and Calexico, plus a congregation in Spanish. As we navigate the end of the COVID-19 quarantine season and transition to in-person regathering, we encourage you to find up-to-date information about events and each campus's worship service schedule. When you follow us on social media, on our website at www.cccib.org, or simply download the CCCIV app, you'll find the direct link to the app at www.cccib.org forward slash get the app or when you text cccib app to 77977 hey so daniel five how many have heard the term before uh the handwriting on the wall right um you know sometimes we we tell our kids that don't you better read the handwriting on the wall here or how about your days are numbered right we've heard both of those um uh, sayings in our culture, they're a part of our culture, but they actually originate out of Daniel chapter 5. It shows you the influence of the Bible through all the ages, and it, it really, chapter 5 opens with the guy named King Belshazzar there in verse 1. And just on a little side note here, a lot of the um, critics of the Bible that had attacked the authority and the authenticity and the historicity of the Bible have said, there it is, there's a mistake. There was no King Belshazzar in the line of kings when you look at the Babylonian kings. And that was, and in fact, they even said there was no such um, man who ever lived in history named Belshazzar. They said he was a figment of our imagination. He wasn't a real person. He was just a guy that Daniel made up or whoever authored the book of Daniel made this guy up. And yet that happened all the way up to the 19th century. And then through archaeological excavations, we saw that there were 37 archival texts dated from the first to the 14th year of Nabonidus, now attest to Belshazzar's historicity. And it goes on to say his father, Nabonidus, resided at Tima in Arabia, about 500 miles south of uh, Babylon for most of his 17-year reign, apparently for religious reasons. So there is the last king, technically, is Nabonidus that's listed in the Babylonian line, um, but he was into worshiping the moon god Sin, and he went down to Tima because he felt like he could have religious freedom there in Babylon. There was um, this issue where Marduk was the king god, and, and, and yet he started following one of the smaller gods of Babylon, and he goes down to worship, and he leaves his son, Belshazzar, is what the texts say, archaeology says he left his son, Belshazzar, as co-regent in Babylon. So technically, Nabonidus, his father, was the last king in the Babylonian line, but practically, it was Belshazzar who was ruling Babylon in his absence. So once again, to the critics of the Bible, it's in your face with archeology. span Took to the middle of the 19th century, but they discovered this and they proved the authenticity of Belshazzar and his reign. So now we get into the text here in chapter five. It's an interesting uh, passage because this is gonna be the end of the Babylonian kingdom. 
We're in chapter five now. I want you to know there's been probably 70 years that have passed since chapter two when Daniel first came into Babylon. He was a teenager. Most scholars think he was about 15 years old. He made it into the king's court because of his wisdom and God's favor in his life. And from that point now, you've got 70 years. He's in his mid-80s. When you read of Daniel in this chapter, he's now in his mid-80s. There's probably been 23 years or so since Nebuchadnezzar has died, and there were a few other kings that came after him, short-lived. Nabonidus takes the, the throne. He was his, either his biological son or an adopted son married to Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. They're not sure exactly which one it is. Nebuchadnezzar takes over the throne. He then puts his son as co-regent. Belshazzar is ruling over Babylon, right now and really that's why you see in verses 7 verses 16 and verses 29 that the promise from belshazzar whoever can interpret the handwriting on the wall will be made third ruler in the kingdom okay third ruler three times in that chapter why not second in command like joseph in egypt i'll tell you why nabonidus was number one belshazzar was number two and um Uh, Whoever interpreted the dream was going to be number three ruler. It just, again, backs up the authenticity of the scriptures. So here we are, Belshazzar's life. I want to just give you a little bit of a setting. You've got the Medo-Persian army now marching upon the Babylonians. They're coming to the city of Babylon. They've defeated some of the armies outside of uh, the walls of this city, Babylon. And Belshazzar, the king is starting to uh, understand what's going on, but instead of preparing, he starts to party. He's, he, instead of preparing for an attack from the enemy, he throws this drunken brawl, really it, it became a drunken orgy when you read all the ancient texts about the Medo-Persians and Babylonians, when they threw a party, they threw a party. It would look like some high, um, class party out of Hollywood where sex was free and the, the alcohol flowed freely and every other thing under the sun. And so instead of him saying, wait a minute, we need to prepare, the Medo-Persians are marching on us. What does he do? He gathers everybody together and he throws this party. And the scholars have always asked why. Bible teachers through the years have said, why did he party instead of preparing And really, I believe it was due to his own self-security. He really felt like he was safe in the walls of Babylon. Now, I threw a picture up there, a couple pictures to show you just so that you get the idea. Now, this is Google Maps and um, what they did, an artist kind of drew over that, but you had the Euphrates River running right through the middle of, of Babylon, that big square. Go ahead and leave that up for a minute. That big square right there is from Google Earth, and the Euphrates River would run through it, and you see kind of a moat that goes around the whole city. Now go to the next one, and here's another uh, picture. This would be an artist's uh, conception of what it would look like. Now I want you to see something. Babylon had these walls that people said were impenetrable, that there was not gonna be an army that comes in and marches on Babylon And so here you've got Belshazzar kind of relaxing. He's probably trying to build the morale of his people. Hey, don't worry about the Medo-Persians out there. We've got this this thing. Look, they're never going to come into the city walls. 
And so we see though that, right, you can't say that with God. God can penetrate anything. It doesn't matter how secure a person thinks they are in their wealth and in their possessions and how secure they believe they're in this life. When you get outside of God, you aren't secure at all. When you're outside of the hands of God, you aren't secure at all. So I want you to see um, in this chapter what's really going on. When Belshazzar begins to throw this party, he's kind of like ignoring what's going on on the outside. I mean, I would be more concerned with what's gonna happen to me. If I had an army outside of the walls of my city and I was the king, I would be more concerned with, hey, what happens if they do break into the wall? What hap- but, but this is the way the world is many times, aren't they? They have this party now mentality or this play now, pay later. I think our credit cards have, have kind of built that mentality in people that, hey, this is the only life you have. No matter when the end is, you just party now, live it up now, because once you die, the lights go out. Paul alluded to this in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, the church in Corinth, and people were denying the resurrection. Paul was making his case in 1 Corinthians 15 for the resurrection of Jesus Christ saying, what do you mean? There is an afterlife, there is a resurrection that goes on and he wrote this to him because this was a saying in that day, what do I gain if humanly speaking I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, for tomorrow we die. There was a saying going on in that day, especially in the city of Corinth, hey, just party now, eat and drink today because tomorrow you're gonna die and it's all gonna be over with. There was that same, you know, play now, uh, no pay later, really, right, mentality. They didn't even think of an eternal um, life. They did not think of an eternal judgment. Paul is coming against him saying, wait a minute, you got this thing all wrong. You will stand before God one day. He deals with the Bema seed even for believers in 2 Corinthians chapter five. And so here's Belshazzar sitting in his own self-security, throwing this drunken orgy, and he has no clue what's ahead of him. It's like, you know, charging up credit cards, right? You just continue to charge them up. You, You buy what you want when you want it, and there's no waiting, there's no patience, whatever we get. Let's get it now, let's, let's go after it now. And that's why you've got so many people in debt in this country. Well, you can't do that with sin and God. You, you may be on credit right now and you may have a credit card, a spiritual credit card, and just charging up and racking up sin, sin, sin with no thought of God, but I'm gonna tell you right now, there is a day of accounting coming. There is a day of accounting coming. So as we go into this chapter, I want you to see several things that I believe the chapter uh, really highlights. First of all, I want you to see Belshazzar's immorality. If you've got your Bible, read with me, uh, starting in verse one. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. I want you to underline in front of the thousand because that's gonna come up in a minute. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple of the house of God 
in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them, and they drank wine and praised the gods of gold or made out of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. We see Belshazzar's immorality beginning in this chapter. Now, like I said, when they threw a party, they knew how to throw a party. I mean, they, they, all the kegs you want, all the cases of champagne you want, all kings, especially in Babylon, had no limit to what they can spend on parties. He gets a thousand of his lords in there, and they begin to, um, they begin to party, and that's one thing. We can talk about immorality and those type of things out in the, the world and how immoral a person becomes, but he did something that Nebuchadnezzar never did. You remember in chapter one, when it says Nebuchadnezzar takes Jerusalem captive? If you look back at chapter one, there's an interesting thing that's stated there. It's a detail and it doesn't come up till what we just read, but it says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God and he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. When I first read that, I thought that's a curious detail when you're taking a city captive or a country or a people captive. Why would you mention those vessels that belonged in the house of God in Jerusalem? Well, here they come up again in chapter five and this is the reason. It's highlighting how immoral of a person Belshazzar was. He wasn't just a guy who was into partying. He said, now I'm gonna go a step further and I'm gonna mock God. He's now committing blasphemy. He's now dishonoring the Lord. You say, well, what's the big deal with, with like these vessels? So he's drinking wine out of them. It's not like he's cursing God. Well, those vessels represented the holiness and the presence of God when they were first made for the tabernacle and then on into the temple. This is what it said in Exodus chapter 30. These are holy items representing the holiness of God. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand in its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. So what Belshazzar is basically doing is taking something that belongs to God and using it in immoral ways. He actually openly profanes Yahweh in front of all the thousands of lords. When he gave that command to go get the vessels Nebuchadnezzar never even did that. He left them in the treasury. He never thought about bringing them out and using them for a drunken party. But this is where Belshazzar's at. And the Bible says in Galatians 6, 7, and you need to take note of this, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And here he is openly mocking God and he's gonna reap destruction, the whirlwind of destruction. We actually see this something of a sort in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 11, the believers were taking communion and they were really disdaining the Lord's Supper and Paul wrote to them and said, many of you are getting weak and dying 
falling asleep, meaning dying, because of the way they were treating the Lord's Supper. Now, somebody could say, those are well, that's just bread and wine. What is, what's the big deal? No, the bread represented the body of Christ. The wine represent the bloody blood of Christ. And so when people gathered together and they participated in communion, it was a holy thing. You don't treat the things of God trivial. And you see where believers are actually dying in the New Testament and getting sick because of the way they treated the Lord's Supper. You may say, well, it's just bread and wine. Well, what did it represent? These temple treasuries, then that's why Paul says, examine your heart when we come to the communion table. Like, you know, if you're living together in sin, we're not judging that. The Bible already has judged that, but we would be glad to talk to you about that and how to rectify that. But don't take communion when you're living together. If you're out there living in a life of sin and you've, you've not really committed your heart to Christ, don't approach the communion table. Do it with reverence and do it with respect. Because it isn't just about bread, and it isn't just about wine, it's what does that represent? And Belshazzar's immorality, this pagan, unbelieving king, God had sent the Medo-Persians to discipline them, they disciplined God's people, and, and now their iniquity had come to the tipping point, and so he's bringing them, and what does he do? He begins to mock God, in front of all of them. Hey, go get the, 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 the temple treasury, the, that, that stuff from Yahweh in Israel. Bring it out. We're going to drink wine and we're going to party with it. It's a big deal. So we see his immorality in the first four verses, but we see God's intervention begin in verses five and six, and this is what happens. It says, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. By the way, where it says his limbs gave way, in the Hebrew, it's more graphic. It's actually he wet his pants, would be a more accurate translation. Now, I want you to know, God isn't sitting in the bleachers on this one and gonna watch the game play out. He's actually now actively getting involved in the situation. He actually crashes the party. And how many know that God doesn't need permission to crash a party? He's gonna do what he wants when he wants because he's sovereign, even if it's the king's party. If you were to walk into the king's party, Belshazzar's party, and say, what are you doing with that stuff? Hey, show some reverence, it would be off with your head. But God just breaks in and he does something very unusual. He begins to write the judgment, which we'll see in a moment, on the plaster of the wall. And that's an amazing thing because I wanna show you a couple other pictures, there were excavations of Babylon from 1899 to 1917 by an archeologist named Robert Coldaway, and it yielded some interesting finds. He actually wrote a book, if you can throw that picture up there. This is the book, if you wanna read it, you can get a copy somewhere. Amazon may have them, I'm not sure if Amazon still has them, but it talks about his excavations and his finds that are in Babylon, and he actually says they found this room in Daniel 5. They found this room. Go to the next uh, picture. I want to show you this one. Blow that up. 
This is the Southern Palace. Again, this is Google, and that's not an artist's conception there. They've actually rebuilt some of the walls. They found the original walls of the Southern Palace. Now, that Southern Palace, there was a Northern Palace. That Southern Palace right there is 350 yards by 200 yards. So you're looking at three and a half football fields by two football fields is the size of that palace. Now go to the next picture. Here's where it, where it finds. See that throne room right there? That is almost 10,000 square feet. The, the measurements were 170 by 56 feet. It's almost 10,000 square feet. And he excavated that. Go, go to the next uh, slide. And that, that's like a, a wide angle, you know, it doesn't do justice to the size of the room. Is there another picture there? Um, so there's a lady standing there. That's where, you know how it opened up and it said he drank in front of all the lords. I told you to underline that. The archeological evidence says he would have been sitting there in front of all of them during this party. Now here's the interesting thing that called away when he excavated that, do you know what he found the walls to be made out of? Plaster, just like Daniel 5 says. And he says again, bingo, there's, there's, there's the evidence. The archeology span is backing this up. So um, that's one of the places, by the way, that I wanna go uh, someday. I wanna go, go get into Iraq there and go into um, Babylon and see the excavations there. And Nebuchadnezzar, um, or Saddam Hussein thought he was an incarnation of Nebuchadnezzar and he actually built a palace above those palaces there in Babylon where the original Babylon stood because he felt he was saying to himself, I'm more powerful than even Nebuchadnezzar was. And that's pretty amazing because look at the fall and how his life ended. You see, so, so again... We're seeing this, so God's intervention is, all of a sudden, now imagine if you're in a party, and in this party with so many people and so many leaders there, and all of a sudden a hand appears, and the finger of, fingers start to write. I mean, it's like you would look at your glass and say, hey, somebody slipped me a mickey, something's going, but no, everybody saw the same thing. And the reason the Bible says he, the writing took place on the wall opposite the candlestick was because they wanted everyone to see it. it. It was the best light in the house. It was shining on the walls, and there goes the writing. Now, the finger of God appears at different times in the Bible. We see that, like in Exodus 8, 19, when Moses went to the um, magicians there, when he was delivering the people out of Egypt, out of Pharaoh's hand, there was a series of judgments that God was bringing, miraculous judgments. One of those was gnats, and the magicians even recognized it, then, and this is the thing about magicians in this earth, there's times that they just recognize, man, this is something from above, this is something from above, and they did that too, in 819 it says, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, so God shows his finger there and it says, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Even though the magicians testify that this is the finger of God, Pharaoh thinks he's so high and mighty, he just gets a hard heart. He doesn't repent. He doesn't repent. Exodus 31 verse 18, when it came to the writing of the law that Moses delivered, it says, 
And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with what? The finger of God. So we see where, where God's finger writes the law. In, in fact, creation, it says, was when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, the finger was a symbol of God's power. Now, we often think of the right hand being a symbol of God's power, but it's just a finger. It's just a finger, the finger of God. Thanks for joining us today for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church in Imperial Valley. The church office is open Monday to Friday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at 590 West Orange Avenue in El Centro, or call 760-337-9400 for information or for prayer. Christ Community Church has three campuses in El Centro, Raleigh, and Calexico, plus a congregation in Spanish. As we navigate the end of the COVID-19 quarantine season and transition to in-person regathering, we encourage you to find up-to-date information about events and each campus's worship service schedule. When you follow us on social media, on our website at www.cccib.org or simply download the cccib app you'll find the direct link to the app at www.cccib.org forward slash get the app or when you text cccib app to 77977